Welcome back, everyone, to our second installation of The Life of Nikita Khrushchev. I'll keep this short, but I do want to issue another language warning, as I did in the first part. If swearing or offensive language is something that is difficult for you to hear, then now is the time to tune out. For everyone else, I present to you the final chapter of Nikita Khrushchev, The Brinksman, Part 2. On September 15, 1959, Nikita Khrushchev was on a plane over the Atlantic. He was on his way to America with a personal invitation from President Eisenhower. It was a big deal, not only for the office of Soviet Premier, but for Nikita Khrushchev personally. He was staking his legacy on this trip. The tension of the Cold War was staggering. Berlin, occupied by both forces of NATO in the West and the Soviet Union in the East, was turning into the hottest geopolitical flashpoint of human history. The Soviet Union had found itself dominated by air force bases and aerial superiority that it had no answer to. But that wasn't all. Soviet communism was badly losing a propaganda war in Eastern Europe. On top of that, the nationalist movement in Ukraine was not going away. And Poland was looking like it was on the edge of a full-fledged rebellion. In answer to these burgeoning counter-revolutionary movements, the question for Nikita Khrushchev was to use force or to not use force. If the Poles abandon communism of their own will, then communism loses credibility. Because, after all, who doesn't want to be communist? But if he uses force and crushes the uprising, then communism still loses credibility. Khrushchev, in the end, chose force, and he rolled in with tanks and squashed the Polish uprising. In Yugoslavia, Khrushchev damn near kissed the feet of Tito to bring him back into the fold of Soviet communism and repair the Stalin-era rift. But Tito would be nobody's fool. And besides, he thought Khrushchev was an incompetent dolt. Khrushchev had effectively brought Egypt into the Soviet bloc. But when Israel attacked Egypt, they called on and expected the Soviet Union to come to their aid. Khrushchev said that he would do what he could. But in reality, he had zero options. His method of defending Egypt was to threaten nuclear war. And it worked. In China, things were much worse. With the death of Stalin, Mao was unofficially promoted to the guardian of communism worldwide. In his meetings with Khrushchev, he treated the Soviet premier as a second-rate beggar. Further, Mao chastised Nikita's overtures to the West as feudal dealings with capitalist pigs. And Mao never missed an opportunity to play emperor to Nikita's vassal. So determined was he to meddle with the Soviet premier's diplomacy towards America that he bombed islands in the Pacific just to prove that he, in his words, held a baton that kept Khrushchev and Eisenhower dancing. Meanwhile, Mao's great leap forward was perpetuating the greatest famine and mass starvation ever known by recorded Chinese civilization. Domestic issues were just as bad as foreign. Khrushchev had barely survived a coup. His office was saved only by General Zhukov, who came to his defense with a litany of Stalin-era crimes against his would-be supplanters. And then there's Soviet agriculture, a chronic issue. There was just never enough food for the masses. 
A fundamental miss of the communist ethos is motivation. And farming is hard work. These destitute peasants of Mother Russia just didn't reap the benefits of collectivization. And this failure in the agricultural sector drove Khrushchev mad. It was particularly bad for him politically since he had promised to overtake the United States' butter and meat production within a few years. But anybody could look at those numbers on paper and know that this was just an impossibility. So obsessed Nikita Khrushchev had become with American farming that he had promised an Iowa-style corn belt in the Soviet Union. If corn was the backbone of American agriculture, then it could be the same for the Soviet Union, he thought. He even found an Iowa corn farmer, a guy named Roswell Garst, to sell him corn seed. Khrushchev bought 5,000 tons of it. The problem was America had had centuries to perfect industrial agriculture. The Soviet Union's peasants had none of the same equipment American farmers had. They generally distrusted tractors, fearing the fumes would poison the soil. They didn't use industrial fertilizer, they had no insecticides, and generally didn't engage in irrigation infrastructure. When Roswell Garst visited the Soviet Union to observe the corn crop, he was so appalled by the results that he asked Khrushchev how his country had managed to steal the atomic bomb. The ineptitude of Soviet communism agriculture may be amusing at surface level, but people were literally starving to death. Even those higher up in the party were vulnerable to such idiocracies. One district leader, who had promised Khrushchev an overwhelming bounty, shot himself when he realized he couldn't deliver on what he promised. Cultural movements were afoot too, partly due to Khrushchev's own making. In throwing out Stalinism, he had removed the veil of fear over Western culture. A new type of music called rock and roll could be heard in certain parts of the Soviet Union. And the younger generation was often caught saying things like, See you later, alligator. Surprisingly, for all of Khrushchev's rocket-rattling on the world stage, he was far from a war hawk at heart. He was actually systematically dismantling the Soviet military. He knew that not only could they ill afford such a huge standing army and conventional weapons, but also that even if there was a war, it would be fought with nuclear weapons, not tanks or men. His own personal theory, one that he wasn't alone in, was that the prospects of nuclear war were so awful, so devastating to the human race, that such a war would never actually be fought. And therefore, bluffing was a relatively safe option, and it often worked for him as it had in Egypt. His speeches often left the world terrified by his threats. In one famous incident, he allegedly told the West that communists will bury them. In one meeting with a U.S. senator, Khrushchev discovered the senator was from Minneapolis. So he walked up to a map of the United States and drew a circle around the city. And he told the senator that the Soviet Union had a new rocket that could travel 9,000 miles and that it had just detonated a 5-megaton hydrogen bomb and that he would try and spare Minneapolis if he could, should war break out. The senator replied that he could not make the same promise from Moscow. U.S. intelligence under Ike thought the Soviets had somewhere around 200 nuclear weapons that could potentially reach its mainland. They actually had closer to half that, and not a single plane capable of delivering and making the round-trip distance. The world lived in a shadow of fear of Soviet ICBMs in the mid-50s. And yet, as late as 1956, they hadn't even tested a single one. To the horror of his generals, Khrushchev gutted conventional weapon spending, and Soviet sailors literally looked on with tears in their eyes as their destroyers were stripped apart for scrap metal. He halted production of long-range bombers and fighter jets. Artillery spending disappeared. And in just a few short years, he reduced the Soviet military by 4 million men. In a major oversight, Khrushchev's government made no accommodations for these 4 million men's housing or employment. They were simply dumped into the masses of an already struggling populace and expected to find jobs and housing for themselves. But Nikita Khrushchev 
prior to his Eisenhower meeting, was having his successes too. On October 4, 1957, he surprised the world with the successful launch of Sputnik, the first artificial satellite in space. He followed this up by beating the Americans to the moon with the landing of the unmanned Luna 2 on its surface in September of 1959. As amazing as these space-age achievements were, Khrushchev still had no answer for the perpetual U-2 spy planes that surveyed the Soviet Union from the sky at will. They became so common that the Soviets simply stopped complaining about them, but they drove Khrushchev nuts. But the biggest problem of them all was Berlin. East Germany was losing bad to West Germany economically and politically. Skilled labor and professionals were literally fleeing the Soviet-controlled side of the city. If nuclear war were to break out, it would start in Berlin. And Berlin was too damn close to Moscow for Soviet comfort. Khrushchev needed the West out of Berlin, and so he played a years-long reckless game of brinksmanship with the West over the city, always threatening to march in if the U.S. didn't capitulate and disarm the Western side. He called Berlin the testicles of the West. Although, he would be outright lying to himself if he didn't acknowledge that Berlin was the same for the East. Despite his posturing, Khrushchev didn't want war. He wanted a deal. But when his overtures to the Eisenhower administration were constantly ignored, he finally declared an ultimatum. Then NATO pull out of Berlin entirely within six months, or he would resort to force. It was, of course, another bluff. When his own son, Sergei, asked him what he would do if the West simply ignored his ultimatum, Khrushchev replied he would just try something else. Ike had longed for a Berlin deal too. However, his military advisors were generally against it, preferring military pressure. But this latest ultimatum by Khrushchev was disconcerting. Ike lost sleep over the military scenarios around nuclear war. The amount dead on either side of the combat was too awful to even contemplate. And this latest Soviet ultimatum threatened to bring the world to the brink. Little did he know that in reality, the Soviet Union's nuclear counterattack was almost as empty as Khrushchev's Berlin ultimatum. And so, Ike finally invited the bombastic Soviet premier to the United States to talk about their differences. Khrushchev was stunned by the invitation. After so many years of being shunned by the West, America had now invited him to tour their country. After the elation wore off, serious logistical questions arose. For instance, the Soviet Union actually had very few modern planes. Most would have to refuel several times en route and were so antiquated by Western standards that to arrive in one would be a diplomatic embarrassment. Fortunately, they did have a brand new jet that could make the trip in one flight, the Tupolev 114. However, its recent maiden voyage had revealed hairline fractures in the engine blocks. But the designer, a man named Tupolev, was insistent that the plane was safe. Nonetheless, the KGB brought Tupolev's own son aboard to ensure the designer's confidence was properly placed. As Taubman says, any CIA agent who guessed why Alyosha Tupolev joined the Soviet premier for this diplomatic trip deserves an award for acumen. Despite the assurance of the designer's own son on board, the KGB arranged for freighters and shipping boats to be peppered across the Atlantic just in case the plane went down. As I said at the opening of this episode, Khrushchev had a lot riding on his meeting with Eisenhower. His political career, at least, the survival of the human species at best. Quote, I had a lot on my mind when we took off from Moscow and headed west. All sorts of thoughts went through my head as I looked out the window at the ocean below. From a ravaged, backwater, illiterate Russia, we had transformed ourselves into a Russia whose accomplishments had stunned the world. Yet, I'll admit that I was worried. I felt as if I was about to undergo an important test, man to man. 
I had already passed the test in India, in Burma, and in England. But this was America. Not that we had considered American culture to be on a higher plane than English culture, but American power was of decisive significance. Therefore, our task would be to represent our country with dignity and understanding of our partner's position. If a disagreement arose, as undoubtedly it would, we had to express our point of view without raising our voice, without letting ourselves be humiliated or saying anything more than was necessary in diplomatic negotiations. Stalin had kept trying to convince us that we were no good, that we wouldn't be able to stand up to the imperialists, that the first time we came into personal contact with them, we wouldn't be able to defend our interests, and that they would simply smash us. Stalin's words sounded in my head. They didn't depress me. On the contrary, they helped me mobilize my forces to prepare myself morally and psychologically for the meeting. In the midst of these thoughts, I was informed that we were approaching the United States. We had begun to circle and were about to land. In a few minutes, we'd be face to face with America. Now, I'd be able to see it with my own eyes, to touch it with my own fingers. All of this put me on my guard, and my nerves were strained with excitement. End quote. It was a hot, clear day in September when Khrushchev's plane landed at Andrews Air Force Base. Both nations' flags waved in the wind. The brass of the military bands glinted in the sun. And there, waiting on the tarmac, was President Eisenhower to greet the Soviet premier. As Nikita stepped off onto the red carpet, national anthems were played and a 21-gun salute was fired off. Khrushchev couldn't help but be impressed, admitting that in his own country, things were always done in a more proletariat way, which, in his words meant more careless. Nonetheless, he was determined not to appear amazed with the grandeur of America. For the next week, he embarked on a sightseeing tour of the United States where he was scolded by Hollywood elites for the Soviet Union's lack of artistic freedom, and he admonished them back for their style of films. Quote, This is what you call freedom. Freedom for the girls to show their backsides. To us, it's pornography. It's capitalism that makes the girls that way. End quote. As he witnessed the protests against him during his tour, he was amazed at how little control the U.S. government exercised over its citizens, commenting that a protester wouldn't show up unless he had given the order. For Khrushchev, he no doubt thought these claims would impress those around him, but they show how little his understanding was of the Western spirit. Finally, Khrushchev got to sit down and discuss actual geopolitics with Eisenhower. On paper, the results of their meeting were not very substantial, but the Soviet premier walked away with a personal relationship with the president. Ike had even taught him the English word for friend. They had both agreed that there would be no deadline for a compromise on Berlin, and that any such agreement would occur only at a summit between the U.S., Britain, France, and Russia. Politically, the agreement gave him an excuse to walk back his Berlin ultimatum, and in turn, it gave him a path to dialing back the threat of nuclear war while saving Soviet face. Though this wasn't specifically addressed, in light of his newfound friendship, he would certainly cease from threatening to invade West Berlin, and Eisenhower, he was sure, would certainly cease from sending U-2 spy planes over his country. Soviet ideologues weren't too impressed. In fact, they were furious when Khrushchev came back to the Soviet Union with a relatively favorable view of the Americans and their leader. As Taubman points out, the carefully cultivated class enemy for 40 years was proving a hollow threat. Back in the USSR on May 1st, 1960, Nikita Khrushchev was awoken by a phone call from his defense minister. A U.S. spy plane was being tracked in Pakistan. It had just crossed the Soviet border and it wasn't slowing down. It was also May Day, a big holiday for the Soviet Union. Walking briskly to his car, he barked at his son, Sergei, quote, They've flown over us again, 
end quote. On his way to the Kremlin, Khrushchev had convinced himself that the U-2 spy plane must be a military decision activated without Eisenhower's knowledge. He could not imagine that an honorable man would engage in such a betrayal of trust after promising to reduce tensions and work towards a peaceful Berlin. On the contrary, Eisenhower personally approved every single U-2 mission. The president even acknowledged in his own journal that if the Soviet Union had violated U.S. airspace in the same fashion, he would ask Congress for a declaration of war. Nonetheless, he insisted that he felt compelled to monitor Soviet missile buildup. Khrushchev ordered the plane shot down, and a Soviet MiG went up but failed to intercept. Another MiG found the U-2 but was shot down by the Soviet Union's own rockets intended for the American. One of the missiles found their mark and exploded behind the U-2 at close enough proximity to bring her down. The pilot was captured alive, incredibly, and as accrued to Khrushchev's geopolitical shrewdness, instead of making some claim about capturing an American pilot, he kept that information secret, and he let the Eisenhower administration outright lie to the world about the incident. Thinking the pilot was certainly dead, they first refused to acknowledge that anything had happened. Then they said it was a weather plane that had gone off course, and as Ike bumbled his way through an embarrassing series of denials regarding the U-2 flight, Khrushchev released photos of the captured pilot. The truth was out, and Khrushchev had caught the U.S. president in a lie. It was a lesson for Khrushchev. His misplaced trust in the president of the United States was put on full display, and he was enraged at Eisenhower and the West for trying to make him look like a fool. Mao and Soviet hardliners relished in the I told you so moment. Nonetheless, Khrushchev flaunted the pilot's capture in public, throwing the humiliation and cover-up back in the face of Eisenhower. Referring to the photos taken by the U.S. spy plane, he said, quote, I must say, our cameras take better pictures and are more accurate. End quote. Khrushchev now used the English word friend as a bitter term for Eisenhower. When the foreign press asked Khrushchev for his opinion on the falling apart of U.S.-Soviet relations, Khrushchev told them to report to their governments that Eisenhower tried to let out a fart, but let out a shit instead. He went on about the president's future after his term was up, quote, We might hire him as the director of a kindergarten. I'm sure he wouldn't mistreat the children, end quote. Later that year, Nikita Khrushchev barged his way into New York City for a United Nations meeting where he made a spectacle of himself, chastising world leaders and the West for their aggression towards his country. He even allegedly took off his shoe and began banging it on his desk in protest of the world. No one knew what to make of Nikita Khrushchev at this point. Much of the world was convinced that the Soviet Union was ready to initiate nuclear war. The American government was in a holding pattern until the next president was decided, and Khrushchev's own government at home knew his threats were empty. They had virtually no military capable of any offensive action whatsoever. It had all been cut. Even the much-boasted Soviet rockets were few and far between, and those they did have had barely even been tested. What's worse, it was turning out to be the worst year for Soviet agriculture since the death of Stalin. Despite all these difficulties... On November 4th, 1960, Khrushchev was grinning ear to ear. John Fitzgerald Kennedy had been elected president of the United States, and in Khrushchev's estimation, he and his brother Robert were inexperienced and unserious playboys. And so from the get-go, he pressed the Berlin issue. He began threatening a treaty with East Berlin that would lead to an increase in weapons buildup on the border. Kennedy cautioned the Soviet premier against such action, but Soviet successes and American failures were precipitating. Just days after Khrushchev was wiping away tears of pride from the Soviet Union's and the world's first successful manned space mission led by Yuri Gagarin, Kennedy was wallowing in self-doubt about his own administration's failure at the Bay of Pigs, as well as his inability to control his own military leadership. 
His indecision had led to a catastrophe for Cuban exiles and a supreme embarrassment for the United States on the world stage. Even Khrushchev was confused by Kennedy's decisions around overthrowing Castro, who Khrushchev called the bearded one, by the way. To his son Sergei, he said he did not understand Kennedy. What was wrong with him? Could he really be that indecisive? That in over his head? In June of 1961, Kennedy and Khrushchev sat down for a summit in Vienna. Kennedy, who suffered from myriad illnesses and conditions, was on a mixture of amphetamines and vitamins, enzymes, and whatever else the famous Dr. Feelgood decided to pump into him, which left him bloated and lethargic. The president also ignored his own advisors by allowing Khrushchev to pull him down into the mire of philosophical debates between communism and capitalism. Nikita Khrushchev, the uneducated metalsmith from Squalor, knocked the Ivy League Catholic boy around like a punching bag. Even Vice President Lyndon Johnson remarked that Khrushchev, quote, scared the poor little fellow dead, end quote. By the end of the summit, Khrushchev had thrown the prospect of nuclear war over Germany back in Kennedy's court, telling him that the Soviet Union would sign a treaty with East Berlin and militarize it in response to NATO doing the same thing in the West. Kennedy ended the summit by telling the Soviet premier, quote, if that's true, it's going to be a cold winter, end quote. Following the summit in Vienna, U.S. military brass demanded a massive and public conventional and nuclear arms buildup in response to Khrushchev's threats. Other advisors pressed for more diplomatic solutions to the tension. The truth was, Kennedy had no idea what to do about Nikita Khrushchev. The Soviet military wasn't any happier with Khrushchev either. At some point, they would have to back up Khrushchev's bluffs. As one of Khrushchev's own generals put it, Soviet ICBMs only exist on paper. In response to the increasing tension, the problem of East Germany talent leak was worsening. In June of 1961 alone, 20,000 people fled to the West. Something had to be done about the embarrassing situation before East Berlin had completely run out of citizens. And so Khrushchev took a chance. In August of 1961, he ordered the construction of a massive barbed wire wall separating East Berlin from West Berlin. And then he waited to see what Kennedy would do. Many of his advisors expected NATO to invade, and thus commence World War III, and with it, nuclear holocaust. Nikita's son Sergei remembered that when Kennedy did nothing, his father sighed with relief, and since Kennedy did nothing, the barbed wire was replaced with concrete. The wall for Khrushchev was better than any treaty. He now had control over his most volatile border with the West, and more than anything else, it proved that he could steamroll Kennedy. After the wall went up, Nikita Khrushchev declared that the Soviet Union was nearly complete with socialism and prepared to enter into the next dream phase of Marx, that of pure communist utopia. He proclaimed that in 20 years, communism in the Soviet Union would be complete. Despite these grandiose assertions, Khrushchev's presidium approved a 35% increase on meat and poultry and a 25% increase on butter and milk, flying in the face of the promise of communism for the past 50 years. In response to the drastic increase in basic food, strikes began. Factories rose up in full-armed revolt, and when the KGB tried to put them down, blood ran in the streets. With riots quelled for the moment, and the talent leak in Berlin at least plugged, and with NATO on its heels, Khrushchev decided to squeeze the Americans even more. He hatched a plot to put ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba. He called it putting a hedgehog down Uncle Sam's pants. Quote, My thinking went like this. If we installed the missiles secretly, and then the United States discovered the missiles after they were poised and ready to strike, 
The Americans would think twice before trying to liquidate our installations by military means. I knew the United States could knock out some installations, but not all of them. If a quarter or even a tenth of our missiles survived, even if only one or two of the big ones were left, we could still hit New York, and there wouldn't be much of New York left. I don't mean to say everyone in New York would be killed. Not everyone, of course, but an awful lot of people would be wiped out. I don't know how many. But that's all besides the point. The main thing is that the installation of our missiles in Cuba would, I thought, restrain the United States from precipitous military action against Castro's government. In addition to protecting Cuba, our missiles would have equalized what the West likes to call, quote, the balance of power. The Americans would learn just what it feels like to have enemy missiles pointing at you. We'd be doing nothing more than giving them a little of their own medicine. We Russians have suffered three wars over the last half century. America has never had to fight a war on her own soil and made a fortune as a result. America has made billions by bleeding the rest of the world. End quote. With that, 36 medium-range and 24 intermediate missiles and the nuclear warheads to go with them began a hastily assembled covert transportation to the bearded one in Cuba. Behind them were hordes of other ballistic weapons, plus the regiments that manned them. Helicopters, bombers, planes, trucks, guns, tanks, submarines, cruisers, and patrol boats, and over 40,000 men in plaid shirts disguised as agricultural advisors. On October 14, 1962, before the Soviet rockets were operational, an American U-2 spy plane took photos over Cuba from an altitude of 65,000 feet. The photos were returned to the CIA for examination. They confirmed missile launch sites under construction in Cuba. Kennedy was still in his bathrobe when he received the news. The president's advisors were entirely confounded. Why had Khrushchev done this? Was it to protect Cuba? Was it for tactical superiority? Was it a a bargaining tool? Nobody could guess. What crossed no one's mind was that it was a half-baked plan that hadn't really been thought through by Khrushchev. For the Soviets, the construction of the launch sites was unfolding into a complete debacle. The high water table, the jungles, the scorching heat, the torrential rain, the mosquitoes. The conditions were not at all what soldiers and engineers from the Soviet Union were used to working in. The ground itself was too soft for the heavy machinery, so the concrete slabs had to be anchored to the earth by hand. And staying true to Khrushchevian diplomacy, he hadn't entirely gotten Fidel Castro's buy-in to install the missiles either. As the project commenced, Castro and Che Guevara complained that when the Americans found out about the launch sites, they would wipe Cuba off the map. Khrushchev replied, quote, You don't have to worry. There will be no big reaction from the U.S., and if there is a problem, we'll send the Baltic fleet. End quote. More bluffs. Che Guevara was stunned that Khrushchev thought the American response wouldn't be big. But nonetheless, the island nation deferred to their communist overlords. On October 22nd, Nikita Khrushchev, returning from a walk, received a call that President Kennedy was going to address his nation. He hung up the phone, turned to his son Sergei, and said, quote, They've probably discovered our rockets. Nothing else would explain it. Berlin is quiet, and if they were about to invade Cuba, then they would be quiet too. The missiles aren't operational yet. They're defenseless and they can be wiped out from the air in one swipe, end quote. Khrushchev called an emergency presidium meeting, and there he told them of Kennedy's coming address and what he thought it was about. He then turned to his defense minister and accused him of blowing the whole operation. Recalling this moment later, Khrushchev noted that, quote, The thing is, we're not going to unleash war. We just wanted to intimidate them, to deter the anti-Cuban forces, end quote. 
Khrushchev's presidium was floundering in an international crisis of its own making. They quickly sent an order to the forces stationed in Cuba stating that if the Americans invade, they were authorized to use any weapons they had available except long-range nuclear weapons. Then it reversed that order and authorized the use of nukes. And then, soon after, it reverted back to the original order. Despite the presidium's orders, the fact remained that the ability to launch nuclear weapons remained exclusively in the hands of a colonel thousands of miles away. These were some of the darkest days the world has ever known since humanity first conceived warfare. Khrushchev and the military leadership were almost certain that Kennedy would be asking Congress for a declaration of war against the USSR, followed by an invasion of Cuba. In turn, the Soviet military scenarios would demand that they invade West Berlin. Then the U.S. would likely launch nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union itself, followed by nuclear weapons launched against major cities in the United States. Nuclear war would have then commenced. Despite it being the height of the Red Scare in the U.S., no one was more afraid of what Kennedy's address would contain more than the Soviet premier himself. After Kennedy's speech, Khrushchev couldn't have been happier. Kennedy had opted for a blockade of Cuba, and further, he had even strategically called it a quarantine, since a blockade is technically an act of war. Khrushchev, as head of the state, was not necessarily obligated to respond to a quarantine. It was, in a way, a grand olive branch from one world leader to another. As the American fleet moved into position to blockade Cuba, U.S. Strategic Air Command, or SAC, moved from Defense Condition 3 to DEFCON 2. As Taubman notes, for the first time in history, all American long-range missiles and bombers were on alert and circling the skies over Greenland and Canada, waiting for the order to head towards the Soviet Union. The SAC commander issued his command in an uncoded message to make damn sure the Soviets intercepted them. Meanwhile, Soviet ships were still sailing towards Cuba and the world watched with bated breath to see who would blink first, Nikita Khrushchev or John F. Kennedy. For most of the world, all that mattered was that someone blink. If neither side did, almost every major city east and west of Berlin would come under nuclear attack. Just take a moment to consider how different the world might look today. Moments before the American deadline expired, Nikita Khrushchev ordered the Soviet ships to turn around. His bluff had finally been called. To his credit, another leader may have been content to go down in a fiery glory, but not Khrushchev. He was determined to save the world, not end it, even if he was saving it from a crisis of his own making. Most of you know the rest of the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. A secret negotiation was made for the U.S. to remove obsolete missiles from Turkey, and in exchange for the removal of missiles in Cuba as well as a promise never to invade the island. There's obviously a lot more to that story, and one could do an entire podcast series on the Cuban Missile Crisis alone, but I'm going to stay out of those weeds and carry on with Khrushchev himself. In the end, Khrushchev sent a public order for his military to, quote, dismantle, crate, and return the nuclear weapons in Cuba. He explained his decision to his presidium, quote, Now we find ourselves face-to-face -face with the danger of war and of nuclear catastrophe, in order to save the world, we must retreat. End quote. Sometime after the hot glow of the missile crisis had died down, Khrushchev's generals confronted him about a manpower shortage in the Soviet military, saying that they needed to extend a mandatory two-year service into three. Khrushchev, even more wary of war now that he had been to the brink and barely pulled back in time, was perhaps exhausted by the constant warmongering of the military. He shouted back at them, quote, Who's serving who? The army, the people, or the people, the army? 
Has it ever occurred to you how many useful things are produced by young men during the third year that they don't spend in the army? You just don't understand. If you did, you wouldn't ask such stupid questions. We spend billions training needed specialists, and all you want to do is grab them away and make them goose step. End quote. At another meeting with his generals, he admonished them, quote, Are we planning to conquer anyone? No. Then why do we need the weapons we saw today? Since any war would go nuclear, but nuclear war itself was unimaginable, only a minimum of missiles was necessary. Beyond that, excessive spending was a drain on the civilian economy. We'll all lose our pants because of you. End quote. When Khrushchev received word that Kennedy had been assassinated, he was seen to have wept as he signed a condolence book. His great pragmatic adversary in the West was dead. And who could tell what the next president would be like? Yet Khrushchev could sense that his own time was drawing to a close. Quote, My strength isn't what it used to be, and it's time to make way for the young. I'll carry the torch till the 23rd Congress and then hand in my resignation. I was 45 when I joined the Politburo. That's the right age for matters of state. You have the strength, and there's lots of time ahead of you. At age 60, you no longer think about the future. It's time to babysit for your grandchildren. End quote. The Kremlin, the Presidium, and the military couldn't have agreed more. On October 13, 1964, Khrushchev sat at the head of his Presidium table, surrounded by men who had been acolytes of himself, men who owed their careers to him. As the meeting commenced, the Presidium members unleashed a torrent of accusations toward their premier. Much of their complaints, I must admit, sound like angsty teenagers mad at their parents, but some were legitimate. He had grown callous towards any of their opinions, and he took no counsel from them, ruling the Presidium table unilaterally. At first, Khrushchev was angry with them, defending himself with equal zeal. But once he realized that a formal coup had been organized and was taking place, he calmed down and he accepted his fate. Perhaps... Relieved, even. Quote, All of you spoke about my negative characteristics and actions, but you also mentioned my positive qualities, and I thank you for that. I'm happy for the Presidium, for its maturity. A grain of my work, too, helped to create that maturity. I'm old. I'm tired. I've done the main thing. Could anyone have dreamed of telling Stalin that he didn't suit us anymore and suggest he retire? Not even a wet spot would have remained where we had been standing. Now, everything is different. The fear is gone, and we can talk as equals. That is my contribution, and I won't put up a fight. End quote. The new presidium, with Leonid Brezhnev as its leader, didn't quite handle itself with the same stoicism. Khrushchev's residence was taken from him, and he was relegated to apartment living. His wife, Nina Petrovna, as Taubman notes, didn't miss a beat in making sure that the new living situation functioned just as well as the old. She treated her husband's ouster as just another party decision and didn't get emotional about it. Khrushchev's son, Sergei, would still take long walks with his father as he had done before, but now his father would say nothing, only occasionally murmuring that his life was over. At times, Sergei noticed tears welling up in his father's eyes. One day... While his grandson was at kindergarten, his teacher asked the boy what his grandfather does in retirement. Grandfather cries, he said. Deprived now of intelligence reports, Khrushchev took to constantly listening to the radio for news, but all too often he would find his liberal reforms being reversed, reversed back to Stalinized laws under Leonid Brezhnev. When he would receive propaganda newspapers from the authorities, he would discard it as garbage, not worth reading. Instead, he took up reading classic Russian fiction, Tolstoy, and the like, and he even began to read some banned books brought to him by his son. 
and after their reading, admitting that banning them was a mistake. He even apologized for the famous incident when he yelled at those artists, noting that he was upset for their artistic criticisms of the Soviet system and of himself, which he acknowledged were correct. Even in retirement, he was obsessed with agriculture. He started his own garden and tended it with his grandchildren, and he experimented with different crops and hybrids and styles of irrigation. He was still looking for something that would more effectively feed the Russian masses. One day, he espied some farmers through his binoculars, and he ran towards them to tell them that they were making a mistake in their planting. They told him that it didn't matter, that this was the way their superiors had ordered the crops be planted and all he could do was huff away, annoyed with the stupidity of it all. In retirement, Khrushchev, as one naturally does, began weighing the merits of his own life and the crusades that he'd fought. Every day that went by, he grew more cynical of the whole Soviet system. Quote, Paradise is a place where people want to end up, not a place that they run from. Yet in this country, the doors are closed and locked. What kind of socialism is this? What kind of shit is it when you have to keep people in chains? What kind of social order? Some curse me for the times I opened the doors. If God had given me the chance to continue, I would have thrown the doors and windows wide open. End quote. Finally, perhaps with a spirit of defiance, he began to work on his memoirs. He knew such a project would create a scandal for the Presidium. Socialist retirees were generally not allowed to do such things. Nonetheless, in August of 1966, with his son-in-law, who's a journalist, sitting across from him in his garden he began to recite his life story into a tape recorder. His son, Sergei, helped him organize the vastness of this project, and a typist was found to begin transcribing the 250-some hours of tapes. Suspicious of the memoirs, the Kremlin summoned Nikita Khrushchev before it. Quote, the Central Committee has received information that you have been writing your memoirs for quite some time, and that they include many events of party and state history. The Politburo demands that you stop work on these memoirs immediately and turn over what you've already dictated to the Central Committee, end quote. But Khrushchev replied, quote, I cannot understand, Comrade Kirilenko, what you and those who sent you want. A lot of people in the world write memoirs, and in our country too. There's nothing wrong with it. Memoirs aren't history. They're just a person's view of the life he'd led. I consider your demand to be an act of force against a Soviet citizen, and as such a violation of the Constitution. And therefore, I refuse to obey you. You can put me in prison. You can seize this material from me by force. You can do all of this today if you wish. But I categorically protest. You violated the Constitution again when you stuck listening devices all over my DACA. Even in the bathroom. You spend the people's money to eavesdrop on my farts. End quote. But the Kremlin dismissed his insistence of rights and pressed their charge. But all it did was make Khrushchev the bolder. Quote, You can take everything away from me. My pension, my DACA, my apartment. That's all within your power. And it wouldn't surprise me if you did. So what? I can still make a living. I'll go to work as a metal worker. I still remember how it's done. And if that doesn't work out, I'll take my knapsack and go begging. People will give me what I need. But no one would give you a crust of bread. You'd starve. End quote. But leaving the meeting, Khrushchev was worried. He confessed to his son, Sergei, that everything they were doing was in vain. That once he was dead, the KGB would confiscate everything and destroy it. But little did old Nikita Khrushchev know was that his son, in true Solzhenitsyn style, had been hiding extra copies of his father's memoirs all over Russia in anticipation of just such an event. Sergei even convinced his father to give him permission to smuggle the memoirs out of the Soviet Union for foreign publication. 
thus transforming the former premier into a political dissident and criminal of the state. But the KGB knew something was afoot, and one day, in the fall of 1969, they burst into the family's home and proceeded to tear it apart looking for Khrushchev's memoirs, but the search was in vain. Sergei was now under constant surveillance by the KGB, and eventually, they detained him, and he produced a copy of his father's memoirs to make them go away. But it was too late for the KGB. Khrushchev's memoirs had already made it to Western publishers, and they were released less than a year later. In the meantime, Khrushchev had suffered a severe heart attack and was not doing well, but his defiance in the face of the KGB remained, quote, Murderers must be unmasked. So many were put to death. So many of my friends were executed, all dedicated beyond a doubt to the party. So many were killed by Mao in the Cultural Revolution, by Mao and Stalin both, end quote. When harassed by yet another KGB interrogator, Khrushchev shouted, quote, Arrest me, please, shoot me. I'm sick of living. I don't want to live. Today, the radio reporter De Gaulle died. I envy him. Maybe your summoning here will help me die the sooner. I want to die. I want to die an honest man. I'm 70 years old. I'm in my right mind, and I answer for all my words and deeds. I'm prepared for any punishment up to and including the death penalty. I'm ready to die on the cross. Bring on the nails and the hammer. That's not just a phrase. I want it. End quote. It was around this time a Russian playwright asked Nikita Khrushchev what he most regretted about his life. And he replied, quote, Most of all, the blood. My arms are up to the elbows in blood. That is the most terrible thing that lies in my soul. End quote. Then there was another heart attack. Back in the hospital, a doctor approached him as he was reading a book. When he realized the doctor was hesitant to interrupt him, he said it's okay. He was only reading about socialism, which is only water. The doctor was understandably confused, but Khrushchev just laughed and reiterated that socialism is just water. Shortly after returning home, he suffered yet another heart attack. And as he was driving again to the hospital, he watched the crops pass him by, and he complained that they were planted wrong. At the hospital, his condition worsened. Taubman tells us his wife, Nina, was reduced to kissing the palm of his left hand, and he to stroking her cheek. On September 11, 1971, at the age of 77, Nikita Khrushchev was pronounced dead. His wife, who was so strong and so reserved, burst into tears. Sergei assumed there would be some sort of state funeral for his father, but it was not meant to be. The KGB locked Nina out of her house and posted guards at the door while they ransacked their home. And instead of a grand red square funeral, the Presidium arranged for a private burial at a small cemetery at noon on a Monday. They then withheld the official announcement until 10 a.m. on the same day, so that by the time anyone found out the former premier had died no one would be able to make it. The coffin was transported in an old bus. At the burial grounds were the KGB to ensure that everything stayed quiet. But one woman dared to speak. She was short and gray-haired and had once been imprisoned by Stalin. And she publicly thanked Nikita Khrushchev in the name of the millions he had released from the gulags. After Nikita Khrushchev's death, 
the Soviet Union largely pretended that he never existed. They undid many of his reforms and reverted to Stalinization in many ways. But as I said earlier in this series, Nikita Khrushchev had already struck a fatal blow against the Soviet Union, right after he became premier, no less. His secret speech had started an ideological counter-revolution that had slowly been gaining momentum for decades. Despite his disappearance from the history books, he had his admirers. Among them were a couple of guys named Mikhail Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin, two guys who didn't exactly see eye to eye, but both of them were Khrushchevian in their desire to reform the Soviet apparatus. In Gorbachev's own words, he considered it his duty to continue what Nikita Khrushchev had begun. Khrushchev was victorious in the end, and though he didn't live to see it, the doors to his wall were thrown wide open on November 9th, 1989. The masses of East Berliners were welcomed by West Berliners with flowers and champagne. Soon after that, the citizens of both sides began demolishing the Berlin Wall, crumbling it to the ground. On Christmas Day, 1991, the hammer and sickle of the Soviet Union was lowered from waving above the Kremlin, and the tricolor historical flag of Russia was raised up in its place. The Soviet Union collapsed in its entirety without nuclear war. In 1991, Khrushchev's son Sergei moved to Rhode Island and became an American citizen. Khrushchev himself had once predicted that the grandchildren of America would be living under communism. But now, his own son was living under capitalism. Opinions of Nikita Khrushchev's leadership is heavily mixed for obvious reasons. He was a complex man, and as such, a great subject for a history podcast, I might add. Yet, about 20 years ago, a poll was taken in Russia, and according to the Dean of Russian Pollsters, only two periods of the 20th century that the Russian people evaluated positively were associated with the last Tsar, Nicholas II, and Nikita Khrushchev. Author Roy Medvedev has said that despite the blood that Nikita himself acknowledges is on his own hands, during his rule, 20 million people were either released or given their good names back posthumously, and that this fact alone outweighs his faults. Nikita Khrushchev would no doubt hope so too. Quote, After I die, they will place my actions on a scale, on one side evil, on the other side good, and I hope the good will outweigh the bad. It has been an astonishing day. Hour after hour, all through today, thousands and thousands of West Germans have come to the wall to see for themselves, to climb up on this hideous structure, to finally look down at what has been no man's land for so long. Suddenly, a flashback to what it was like for so long. A young man in the East makes a dash for the wall. They catch him and take him away. Presumably, he should have used a legal border crossing. Only a couple of years ago, he might have been shot. Not today. Today, it was possible to have a dialogue. Your government seems to be changing every day. Where do you think it's going? <laughs> That's the government's problem, he says, not mine. Such an astonishing moment in history. Now, what's it feel like to be standing on top of the wall? It's incredible for me. It's, uh, I can't uh, describe really the, my feelings. It's uh, something unreal for me. If, if there is someone who, uh, who sleeps for eight weeks 
and you told him what happened here, he thinks you're crazy. It's, it's unthinkable. Unthinkable. Many of the East Germans were stunned by it all. I've been waiting 28 years for this, he told us. Will you come permanently, we asked. How long will you stay? I haven't much money, he said, but I'll stay till I run out of gas. I think one of the most terrifying things imaginable is to be at the end of our lives and upon reflection to be full of regrets. To feel like your time was ill-used is terrifying to me. Let us hope that Khrushchev's good really does outweigh the bad. If you enjoyed this telling of history and think that it's worthy of at least a dollar a month, I'll shamelessly take that dollar. The show's patrons are the fuel that feed me. They help me offset the cost of production and research material. And you can become a patron by heading over to patreon.com slash writtenandbloodhistory. Another critical way you can help the show is by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen. Little podcasts like these don't have advertising dollars to throw around. We are entirely dependent on the almighty algorithm for exposure. Your reviews and ratings help us move up the charts. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com or my Twitter handle is at sdejulius or message me on the show Facebook page. This podcast is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out evergreenpodcast.com to discover other fantastic pods that they have in their catalog. And now, until next time, I must bid you goodbye. And thank you so very, very, very much for listening to Written in Blood History. See you later. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. 
We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.